Hello, relatives. Welcome back to another episode of All My Relations. I'm Matika Wilbur, and thank you so much for joining us. The following is a trigger warning. This episode contains conversation about rape, domestic violence, substance abuse, suicide, and murder that some listeners may find disturbing, and it may not be suitable for younger audiences. It's an understatement to say that this episode is a tearjerker. We acknowledge the deep psychic spiritual wounds that have been violently inflicted upon our bodies and spirits that forever changed the foundation of our identities and cultures. We invite you to take a moment to make some space for yourself. Smudge, light a candle, do whatever it is that you need to do to hold space. But know that right now, I'm burning sweetgrass for you and all those past and present that have experienced violence in their lifetime. In their memory and honor, let's take a moment of silence. Hi everyone, Dr. Dr. Desi here. So we are releasing this episode today because May 5th is National Awareness Day for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. A resolution was passed by the United States Congress, which declared May 5th the day to honor the life of Hannah Harris, who was a Northern Cheyenne tribal citizen. She was from my home community in Lame Deer, Montana. And on July 3rd, 2013, Hannah left home to see fireworks and she never returned. Her badly beaten body was discovered on July 8th near our local rodeo grounds. And I want to acknowledge the Harris family who fought tirelessly for justice for Hannah and who continue to fight for justice for many missing and murdered indigenous women and girls across the country. Hannah would have been celebrating her 29th birthday today. Mm. You know, violence is very real in Indian country. The most quoted report that we've all heard over and over and over again is the one in three which is one in three native women will be raped in her lifetime and that statement that i've been hearing for a really long time we've all been hearing it for a long time is from the 1998 department of justice report which looks at the national violence against women survey um but you know and the truth is it's been discussed by everybody, right? Like the New York Times, the Washington Post, even Obama when he was president, he quoted that one in three survey and he said that it's an assault on our national conscience. It's an affront to our shared humanity. It's something that we cannot allow to continue. But, you know, that data is 25 years old. And you, Dr. Dr. Des, being a survey gal, Maybe you can explain to us how that's a problem and what some of the new information says. Yeah, I mean, we know the data are old, right? And yet it continues to be quoted and it continues to be used in in media, in policy, right? And the problem is that there hasn't been another report done by the federal government on this scale ever since. And it literally took two indigenous women to create a new report in 2018. This was the Urban Indian Health Institute and the Sovereign Bodies Institute who came together to create a new report with data that had to be obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. So the federal government isn't just giving these data over to indigenous people and our advocates and allies. We actually have to go through a a petition to get these data to be able to use them. Um, and so that's, you know, the fact that they, there isn't transparency or accountability in the data that are being collected about our people is a huge problem. Um, and 
then so this this 2018 hmm. report was huge. It, it's still huge. It you know, had this massive impact across the country to policymakers and legislators mm-hmm. at every level. Um, and this report identified 5,712 cases of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. So these are reports, okay, reports of them being missing. Mm-hmm. But do you know how many of those cases were actually logged into the United States Department of Justice's federal missing persons database? Only 116. Hmm. So literally only 2% of these cases of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women were even logged into a federal database. And so again, tells us the magnitude of the data problem, the the pervasive erasure that that is just so profound. Mm -hmm. But why does the data matter in this case? The data matters because if we don't have the data on our people, we can't actually communicate with any sort of evidence to the people in power. The data are power. And so if we don't have data on our people and it's not accurate, then essentially our problem doesn't exist. This problem doesn't exist. Mm, Right. So with national media attention, with presidential attention, even with the data, we know that the reality isn't shifting. In fact, it's getting worse. And there have been some major wins in the last 15 years, right? With VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, and there was major confusion over that act. But basically, what we know is that for a really long time, violent crimes were happening towards Native women, and we didn't have the ability in our tribal territories, in our tribal homelands to prosecute non-Indians. So in 2013, it shifted. We were able to prosecute non-Natives, but there was this, like, it was explicitly limited to violence committed by spouses, former spouses, or dating partners. So consequently, women who are raped by persons within other relationships, for example, acquaintances or relatives or strangers, they're not covered by the that legislative change and authority over such crimes requires Congress to enact additional reforms to federal law. So right now, VAWA is being reformed and was recently passed by the House of Representatives on Wednesday, March 17th, by a vote of 244 to 172. And so the act, if passed, would add numerous protections for Native women, including the expansion of scenarios where a federally recognized tribe would have jurisdiction over a non-Indian perpetrator. So past versions of the act covered crimes of domestic violence and dating violence. um, And this version adds obstruction of justice, sexual violence, sex trafficking, stalking and assault of law enforcement. So the point is, contact your senators. We need this reform passed (laughs) and it's being held up in the Senate. So that's that's critical. Right. There was also the passage of Savannah's Act in September of 2020. And so this is a bill that requires the Department of Justice to strengthen training and coordination and data collection and other guidelines related to cases of missing or murdered indigenous people. But that's not without its complications either. And we'll discuss that later. There's also Deb Holland's Mm -hmm. new missing and murdered unit in the Department of the Interior, which provides cross-departmental and interagency leadership involving MMIW cases. 
And this unit also puts the full weight of the federal government into investigating these cases across federal agencies all throughout Indian country. And this is huge because it is actually requiring agencies to work together and to be accountable for the first time ever on these cases. So how did we even Mm -hmm. get here? Why do we need these special laws, task forces, and Senate hearings? You know, I really love the point that Sarah Deer makes in her book, The Beginning and End of Rape Culture, Confronting Sexual Violence in Native America. She says that America is founded in rape culture. You know, we take, for instance, Christopher Columbus, the iconic symbol of colonization, who actually bragged about raping indigenous women in his his journals. And Sarah says it's an extremely important Um, acknowledgement because it exemplifies the logic of colonists who would continue to deploy rape as a tool of conquest. And she says the historian Albert Hurtado notes of the 19th century gold rush, quote, part of the invading population was imbued with a conquest mentality, fear and hatred of Indians that in their minds justified the rape of Indian women, end quote. And this rape culture didn't begin and end in the founding of this country. Native women experience the trauma of rape as an ongoing violence that spans generations. Absolutely. And this rape culture is also being perpetrated against indigenous people by indigenous people. So we Mm -hmm. know we had rape in our societies pre-colonization too. Our societies weren't these like panaceas where everything was fantastic. But definitely, we did not have rape to the extent to which the colonizers introduced. And, you know, the main point of difference, I believe, is that tribal societies restored balance and healing. And so I want to give a Cheyenne story that I've often discussed with my mom, who's an attorney, and she led the fight to get my tribe's first sexual assault law passed. And so prior to invasion, when a Cheyenne person was raped or assaulted, the goal of my tribe's society was to restore power to the survivor. And so the survivor and their family were able to go and take back their power by literally taking whatever they wanted from the perpetrator's home. And they could even burn the teepee. And our military societies could also take action by having a public shaming. And that often included whipping. And the perpetrator would be banished from the tribe for a period of time. And so the point was that restoring power to the survivor required a public action. And I feel like we are facing a very similar need today. We need public action to restore power to indigenous survivors. Mm. Yeah, indigenous restorative justice. (laughs) We need it. Uh, Right. Well, we have a lot to talk about. So let's just jump into the episode. Today we have two wonderful guests, Mary Catherine Nagel, who you might have actually just seen in The New Yorker. She's an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, a playwright and partner at Pipe Stem Law, and the executive director of the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. We also have Abigail Echohawk joining us, who you might have just seen in Vogue magazine. I mean, these are amazing Native women. Abigail is an enrolled member of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. She's the chief research officer for the Seattle Indian Health Board. And she also serves as director of the Urban Indian Health Institute, which is a tribal epidemiology center. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
Nation. Let's start by asking you both to introduce yourselves as you would to a large group of people. And let me just, of course, say thank you so much for being here, Tiguitzitziayas. I appreciate you and the work that you do. And when you introduce yourselves, could you also just reflect a bit on the term all my relations, what it means to you? And go ahead, MK. Sure. Uh, Good afternoon. Good morning. (laughs) Good evening, depending on where you are in in the world. Uh, My name is Mary Catherine Nagel. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, which is a tribe today located in Oklahoma. Uh, Historically, my family before forced removal in our nation uh, was was in several areas that are now like Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, but my family specifically was living in what is now northern Georgia. Uh, Today, I live in Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C., on the traditional homelands of the Piscataway and the Powhatan. And I am an attorney and a playwright. And as an attorney, I work at a small law firm. We're called Pipestem Law. We're based in D.C. and in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And our focus is on restoring sovereignty and tribal jurisdiction and safety for Native women. So we do a lot of... um, things that relate to safety for Native women. Some of them are filing briefs. Uh, Sometimes we write letters to the FBI and ask them why they're not doing their job. Um, You know, it's it's sort of all of the above. And um, and that's that's sort of the experience that I carry with me. So thank you so much for having me. And so, you know, I, I understand that to, you know, be derivative of a Lakota saying and respect that very much. And I think, you know, and a lot of folks in Indian country say that, and in Oklahoma too, where I'm from, and I understand that to mean when I hear people say that. And in Indian country, we very much understand that we're all related, and that uh, relationship, kinship, isn't, isn't as transactional as it might be in the non-Native world. And that's, that's how we've traditionally formed our communities, our culture, our systems of governance. And I think for that reason, traditionally, our nation's were quite strong and have been quite strong. And I think that's one of the reasons why the United States government and its efforts attacked those relationships of kinship and told us mm-hmm. that we couldn't believe in all my relations. And mm-hmm. I think when we do this work, um, which you refer to as rematriation, which I love and I think is a very, very powerful term, um, you know, it's not lost on me that a lot of our societies are traditionally matrilineal, which is not to create any kind of hierarchical understanding of gender, but is to certainly offer a different perspective than the way in which kinship in a very patriarchal sense is promoted in sort of the non-Native American society. And so I think that the task before us does require all of us, and what we do impacts all of us. Um, everything, everything has a ripple effect, and I think traditionally as Native people we understand that, and I think we can see that, and that's, that's how we're able to understand why there are such high levels of violence against Native women and Native peoples today. It's because it is all related, and you can't, you can't separate it into these different buckets. So, so thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> Dang, how do I beat that? <laughs> um, I'm Abigail Echohawk. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma on my father's side, but I was born and raised in the heart of Alaska amongst my mother's people, the upper Atna Athabascan people of Mintasta, and I was raised in Delta Junction, Alaska. 
So my mother is one of the adopted children of the matriarch, Katie John of Mintasta Village. Mm. And we are very blessed to have been welcomed into that tribal community growing up in Alaska. I was so blessed to see these strong Native women to this day Mm -hmm. who lead the village, who protect the village. And ensure a safe and well-being for all of us. Mm -hmm. So I also, I know, come from that on my father's side. Um, The Pawnee Nation is currently located in Oklahoma, but we were dislocated from Kansas and Nebraska areas. Mm -hmm. And so I know that's where my traditional homelands are, where the stories of the matriarchs of the Echo Hawk family, where their stories come from. The stories of the Morgan family, um, that's where those stories come from. And I always reflect back that I have a responsibility to all of them. Mm. So I have spent uh, many years working in doing everything I can to end violence against Native women because I do identify as a Native woman who has been um, a victim of both rape and sexual assault. Mm. And years ago, I thought I could never let any of my relatives ever endure what I had to. Mm. This should not be their outcome. Mm. And so um, part of my healing has been my work in MMIW, also in ending sexual violence and doing everything I can, including sharing my own stories of healing, of resiliency, of reclaiming matriarchy in that healing to ensure that my nieces and my loved ones and all my relations don't experience or expect that this is what's going to happen to them or their relatives. Mm. I reflect back on last year, I got a call from the state of Nebraska Mm. and they were asking me for advice on their MMIW project. Um, I got to spend some time with them, provide some strategic advice. And afterwards the woman said, she's like, I know who your family is. She's like, I know you're an Echo Hawk, and I know that Pawnees came from Nebraska. She said, I want you to know that you are doing something now to protect Native women on your traditional homelands. Mm. And I just cried, sat in my office, cried for 30 minutes. And that's what being a good relation means to me, reflecting back on all my relations. Mm -hmm. Pawnee people, we don't have our traditional reservation homelands anymore. We do have some land, Mm -hmm. but there are other Native women there, and it's my responsibility to care for them, to care for the land, and to be connected to them. Um, We are not people who see ourselves as individuals, but rather a part of a community. Mm -hmm. And to me, all my relations means... I am blessed with the responsibility of accountability and responsibility to love, to protect, and to heal not only myself, but what parts of my healing can contribute to the healing of our nations. Hmm. Dang. (laughs) We've got two powerhouse women, indigenous women, indigenous matriarchs with us. I mean, just warrior women. I'm so... I'm so honored to be in these rooms and virtually <laughs> with you as well. This is fantastic. Wow. So Mary Catherine, can you help us set the stage for our listeners? It's an outrage that we even have to have these types of conversations, right? But many aren't familiar with the MMIW movement or kind of the the complexity of it uh, across Indian country and beyond, beyond just these colonial boundaries, right, that exist. So can you give us an overview of, of MMIW from your perspective and from your work? 
Uh, that's a great question. And I think, you know, uh, it's important to note, right, like MMIW has in a way caught fire in the larger American society in the last few years in that non-Native Americans are starting to be familiar with the term, use the term, non-Native media is starting to cover it. We saw two pieces of legislation come through Congress and they were signed by the president last October. Uh, but but obviously we know as Native women, MMIW has been a crisis since 1492. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the work we're all doing today is building on the generations of work of, of women who fought before us. But just for whatever reason, um, and, and you know, and I would give credit to my sister Abigail here, the, the reports that UIHI have put out garnered a lot of national media attention. The work the SBI has done, I mean, there, there's not, it's not an accident that the media is paying attention all of a sudden. Um, it is through the hard work of people publishing really important things that finally people are starting to read. But I also, I also like to refer people to Sarah Deer's book, The Beginning and End of Rape, and she actually does a great job of documenting in that book the, the violence against indigenous women that began with when Christopher Columbus got lost at sea and washed up here on our shore and just thought it was a great idea to rape and kill native women and kidnap them and did with with reckless abandon and then bragged about it in the journal entries he wrote. And, you know, the violence hasn't stopped since then, right? And I think for a lot of us, um, we have the oral history of it, but the, also the written history of it. Uh, you can look in, unfortunately, soldiers' journals from different Trails of Tears, and they brag about raping the Native women on, on those different Trails of Tears for different tribal nations. So we've got a history of horrific massacres where the U.S. Army specifically targeted Native women as a strategic means of taking out a tribal nation like the Sand Creek mm -hmm. Massacre, which is just one of many examples from the U.S. military authorized by the federal government and carried out by the federal government. And so it's not a surprise today that we have a culture that promotes and accepts violence against Native women because that's, that's at the foundation of the United States and that's not going to change until we have a large large-scale reckoning and, and we say actually that is not an American value. That's how we began but that was wrong and we're gonna stop. But that, that takes a lot of people outside of Indian country coming to the table and being ready to have that conversation and we're, we're unfortunately not quite there yet. And I think then you add on all the legal complications which is what I tend to focus on as an attorney. It doesn't help <laughs> <laughs> that in 1978, the Supreme Court was like, you know what, by the way, tribes, you don't get to exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians anymore. Sorry, we just, for some racist reasons, I think, don't want you to have that jurisdiction anymore, and they took it away. After that, that was 1978, it's not surprising that the Department of Justice reported that the majority of violent crimes committed against Native people are committed by non-Natives. So that's mm -hmm. not to say that we don't have Native-on-Native -native violence. We, we all know we do. And we, and we can talk about the causes of that and the relationship of that to intergenerational violence, boarding schools, you know, all of that. But the majority of the violence is coming, now I'm talking about on tribal lands, from non-natives, and the Supreme Court has taken away the jurisdiction of our government to prosecute those crimes. No wonder these folks know they can come onto tribal lands and commit those crimes with reckless abandon and impunity, and they will not be prosecuted. At the same time, you know, we know that our, our Native folks today don't, and, you know, we don't just, we've all, and we've always been transient, right? We've always had commerce and trade and diplomacy. We've never been in one spot. Uh, we've been very vibrant nations with, with political relationships with other nations long before 1492. So mm -hmm. our Native citizens, our Native people are all over.
sometimes they're in Seattle, sometimes they're in Baltimore, sometimes they're in downtown Kansas City. Uh, when our Native women are murdered or assaulted, the non-Native local police oftentimes have no motivation or desire to prioritize um, the investigation of that crime or the apprehension of the criminal who committed that crime against a Native woman. And I know you're very familiar with that, Desi, with the horrific murder of your niece, Kaysera Stops Pretty Places. And that's a case that the Bighorn County should have investigated and prosecuted a long time ago. Um, I represent her family and have, through the help of her family, brought the county sheriff's office a gigantic pile of evidence. It is very clear who the top suspects are. They've never mm. been investigated. Why? Mm. Because, again, this is outside of the tribal community. So the tribe doesn't have jurisdiction technically, but the county does, and it, they don't care. Either It's either that they don't care or they're corrupt and specifically protecting the perpetrators of that crime. And that's oftentimes some of the cases I work on, I don't have permission to speak about publicly because the families are so frightened. The local sheriff is best buddies with the killer who's killing the native girls. And they know that if they speak out, they're going to face punishment on that local level. So... There, there are, and there are more reasons than that. I mean, I, you know, we could sit here and talk for hours about the different things that contribute. But I think it's, we've got historical um, celebration of violence and acceptance of violence against women in the United States that hasn't been dealt mm -hmm. with culturally. We have a legal framework that perpetuates it. And then we have racism and prejudice um, and corruption at the local level, outside of our tribal governments. And... And, and the way to deal with that, and I know UIHI has been on top of this, is we have to look at this as a state and local problem too. We can't just go to Congress and ask them to fix it because they do not constitutionally have all the authority they need to fix everything that we need to fix at the state, county, and local level as well. So you can see it, and people will throw their hands up in the air and say, oh my God, it's too complicated. Uh, what do I possibly do? And I say, it's not complicated at all. You vote. Who do you vote for? When you vote for your county sheriff, is that someone who prosecutes people who murder Native women? If not, don't vote for them. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Everyone needs to vote with MMIW at the top of their list. And if these elected officials aren't taking it seriously, then don't vote them back into office. Vote them out of office. And that is, mm -hmm. that is one thing that every single citizen across the United States can do. Mm. MK brings up an incredible, um, important topic is that, yes, the jurisdictional issues in our tribes and our villages is so complex, um, and they use that as an excuse for non-prosecution. And then when we look in our urban cities, and those are overseen by local law enforcement, they don't have that excuse, and they're still not doing it. Mm. Um, so the Urban Indian Health Institute, we put out the very first study on urban sexual violence. And one of the things we found is that of the Native women we talked to in the city of Seattle, 94% of them had been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Mm. Numbers like had never been seen before. Many people were surprised. I wasn't. They simply hadn't been asked before. Mm. And out of those women, those who took their uh, cases to the police, only 8% of them saw a conviction and prosecution of their perpetrators. Whoa. So recently, as a result of the COVID pandemic, there's reports in Seattle of homeless women specifically being sexually assaulted and victimized, going missing for several days, um, getting dropped back off. And so there was an interview that was done on local uh, TV and the women were saying, yes, this is happening. The providers of social services were saying it was happening. And when they went and asked the police, what do you know? And they're like, oh, well, we haven't seen any uptick in sexual assaults at all. Nobody's reporting them. 
And my answer to them is, why would we? Hmm. You're not going to do anything. We know it's happening. And as a result of COVID, with the increased amount of violence, particularly domestic violence, sexual assault, we're actually doing everything we can to help prevent. But people don't trust the police simply because they don't do anything because of all of these historic invisibility, the over-sexualization of Native women, Mm -hmm. the justifications of rape culture. People don't believe us. And when we go into these systems, they don't prosecute. They don't invest the same resources. And as a result of that, it is part of the perpetuation of this ongoing violence that allows for people to say, hey, we're getting sexually assaulted. And the police say, well, you didn't report it, so we don't care. Mm. Yep. Or victim blame, too. I mean, how many times have we been told I've had clients where usually if you know a family will ask me to represent them because they don't know where else to go they just they're like can you be an attorney and fight for us and I'll talk to the police and I'll say okay we need to investigate this and they'll say well you know she's a young native girl in her early 20s or late teens she probably drank herself to death that's what we think happened and I'm and I'm like absolutely not the family says that didn't happen you know they say no where it's not an investigation there's no crime here there's no homicide she just drank herself to death toxicology report comes back no alcohol Right. How many times has that happened? And they just they'll just write it off as well. You know, we're just going to victim blame here instead of do our jobs. And you know, that would not be the case if it was a white girl who was murdered. They would not be blaming her. Even if it was a white college girl who was at some crazy party and was drinking alcohol, they would investigate her murder. Right. It it is it is shameful uh, the way in which law enforcement, especially in, in, you know, off the reservation, I'm talking just state and local, too, will just will will victim blame instead of doing their job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Abigail, you actually sort of brought this up just for a moment, but I, I want to give you a moment to elaborate. You co-authored a seminal report on MMIW, and we would really appreciate it if you would share with our listeners the importance of that work and how we need to bring awareness to the issue in both urban and reservation contexts. I'm really blessed to have been um, been able to be part of organizations that focus on research and data collection. Data collection to me is an indigenous value system. We always gathered information. We mm-hmm. analyzed it and we used it for the good and well-being of our people. Mm-hmm. But we know that data now gathered by sources outside of our tribal governments and our communities has been used against us. Mm -hmm. And we find that the non-collection of data around violence against Native women and Native people has become an excuse to not direct the resources, to not direct the policy, and that lack of data is being used against us despite these systems have created why the data isn't being collected. Right. So I have been blessed to work with numerous people across the United States on how do we begin to collect this information, highlight these gaps. And it started with our report on sexual violence in an urban city, Seattle, Washington, um, pulling together the fact that 94% of the women we talked to had been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And after those first assaults, we then found their coping mechanisms of alcohol, opioids, Um, suicide attempts all directly tied to the trauma of their first sexual assaults. Mm. All of these things are the risk factors for people to go missing and to be murdered. And it started with that first instance of violence. And in that study, we found the average age of first sexual assault was 13 years old. Mm. These are young babies who deserve Mm. more. 
So um, I partnered with the incredible Anita Lucchese, and we worked together. She led most of the hard work um, in putting together our report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in 71 cities across the United States. And we were able to do that through freedom of information requests where we were requested police departments on the data that they had. Mm. What we found was more of what was missing than what they actually had. Doing things that we know, like if they didn't collect the race and ethnicity of somebody who was murdered, that they would default them to white in a database system Hmm. um, where they just simply wouldn't collect it. And there was no, you know, officers have no accountability if they don't collect the race and ethnicity of people. So how, why does that matter? Because if we can't tell the race and ethnicity of murder victims, of folks who have gone missing, people who have been found, we can't understand what's going on at the, the base causes and also a base understanding of how deep this epidemic is. Hmm. And actually, it's, it's not an epidemic. It's a crisis. Mm-hmm. It's a crisis of more than 500 years. Mm-hmm. And so our work has really focused on the data aspects. Um, and also, as people have begun to use our report, it was such a blessing to see tribal communities use a report about urban Indians to build forth tribal sovereignty. Mm-hmm. I was ecstatic <laughs> about that. And also, we need to ensure that it supports and builds forward safety for urban dwelling American Indian and Alaska Native women. And we have been working as an organization, the Urban Indian Health Institute, to support states nationwide in addition to grassroots movements to support them in doing this. Um, The data is key. Without it, we wouldn't have got the publicity that we've seen over the last couple of years. And we also need to call out when people start to use the information that we have collected against us. So here in Washington state, the state of Washington put out a report Uh, on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the state of Washington. And in that, they blatantly plagiarize our report. Um, Mm. They also misuse information and data that was gathered from tribal nations in 10 listening sessions across the state. And then they put it forward as something that's going to benefit our communities. When in fact, they basically checked a box of legislation said we had to do this. We're going to do a subpar job and nobody's going to notice because it's a bunch of Indians. Hmm. And we refused to accept that. We issued our third report in our series of Our Bodies, Our Stories that was refuting the Washington State report, the way that they looked at information, the way they blatantly plagiarized our previous work. Mm -hmm. And we also wanted to let every other state and nation know we are watching you. Mm -hmm. So when you do these task force, when you put out these reports, I guarantee you my team and I will be combing over them and we will make sure that you're just not checking some box. We are going to make sure that it's going to benefit our community and you're not using our data to harm us. Mm-hmm. And they weren't happy. I ended up in a uh, meeting with the chief of the Washington State Patrol where he, they, he refused to accept any accountability. And in fact, to this day, continues to plagiarize us in their report. And when you go to the um, Trump administration's Operation Lady Justice and you see the reports for Washington state, they list reports per state on Operation Lady Justice. They have the Washington state report there. The one that is wrong, that misuses tribal data and blatantly plagiarizes indigenous women, myself and Anita Lucchese, in a bad way. We refuse to let that stand. Mm -hmm. So part of this is that continuous fight. 
Mm. We are putting forward the information to put it in the hands of grassroots organizers, of the incredible lawyer warriors like MK here. We are doing everything we can to get them the resources, but we're also going to hold folks accountable to using that in a good way. We're not going to let them get away with checking a box and saying, oh, we address the issues of the tribes. Like, oh, no, you're going to do a good job or give us the money and we'll do it ourselves. Quit taking resources that we could do a better job with. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I, I, we'll talk a little bit more about the data, uh, the data stuff, but I want to talk a little bit more about the urban issues. So we know more than 70% of, of Native peoples, right, are, are not living on reservation homelands and mm-hmm. tribal homelands. And this is the population, Abigail, that you work very closely with. And so how do we ensure protection for tribal people who live off reservation land? Um, what, what do we need to do? We are tribal people, regardless of where we live. And there are some misunderstandings by non-Indians about what it means to be an urban Indian. Urban is an experience. We are tribal people. I am a Pawnee woman. And I'm a Pawnee woman in Seattle, just like I'm a Pawnee woman in Delta Junction, Alaska, (laughs) like I am in Pawnee, Oklahoma. And we need to understand that as our tribal people have come here from being removed from their tribal places, some of the tribal people in urban settings, this is their traditional land. And others have come for economic reasons, educational reasons. And we need to ensure our safety regardless of where we live and what experience we're having, whether that it's urban or rural. And working with our urban populations, we know that there is an incredible lack of safety. Um, I talked about before that police departments, when taking Um, reports on missing Native women, on sexually assaulted Native women, um, on folks who have been murdered, immediately go to victim blaming. Oh, are you sure she's not a runaway? Was she drinking? Who was she at? What bar was she at? All of these things are asked before, how do we get your loved one back? How do we get you justice? And so we've seen our urban Indian communities come together. Um, We have incredible support systems in our incredible thriving urban Indian communities, but outside of them, we see very little of that support. So my organization recently um, gave small grants to survivors of sexual violence in 26 urban cities across the United States. And one of the things we asked them is what are they experiencing right now in the midst of COVID? And more than 20% of them said that they do not have physical safety. Mm. right now and they're seeing their physical safety even being threatened more in the midst of covid where Mm. they're quarantined with their abusers where there's not as many shelters where there's not as much space for them to receive safety as a result of that we have our women who will decide to live in a car with their children because as a native person they're not treated in a good way when they go to a traditional shelter system Mm. so our urban indian women are really lacking the resources that they need. What we have found is when tribal communities work closely with their urban Indian communities, the Minneapolis community is a really good example of that here in Seattle, Washington. Um, There's other great examples where people are working with the tribal nations to come together to put supportive systems in place that are survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, for families whose loved ones have gone missing or who have been murdered, that there's advocacy coming from their tribal nations. And 
treaty and trust responsibility did not end because I stepped off my reservation. Right. And a recognition of that we come from sovereign nations, that we are part um, and we have sovereign governments and we need to be working closely with them. So we actually have a project, the Urban Indian Health Institute right now to address the data issues. And as part of that, we are facilitating tribal consultations with local law enforcement with their federally recognized tribes to ensure that information on missing and murdered and other violence against Native women is flowing back to the tribes from the law enforcement so that there is a bi-directional relationship which needs to be built so tribal nations have and understand what is happening to their urban Indian people. And nothing like that has happened up until this point. And our people very awesome often just disappear without anybody knowing about it. Hmm. And we can't let that continue. So we are tribal regardless of where we live. And the strengths of our urban Indian communities is the inner tribal support that regardless of what tribal nation you are, we're all related. And we are going to work together to protect each other, to provide resources for each other, and to love each other, regardless of where we live. And we're seeing some of tribes really working to establish those relationships in their urban Indian communities so that they can support their urban dwelling citizens. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I think what what I have noticed in this MMIW work is the opportunities to strengthen sovereignty in urban centers and to really see that type of data linkage, you know, that type of of cooperation, um, that type of, you know, intertribal sovereignty over, um, you know, both data policy and and service delivery, I think is just it's a very powerful example that's been a long time coming. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I want to just take a moment to acknowledge that we're when we're acknowledging talking about data, we're talking about people's lives, you know, like our sisters, our aunties, ourselves, our mothers, you know, like I just had a baby girl. And so, uh, you know, I, I very much want to acknowledge that, that these are people's stories, individual stories, you know, and, and I thought maybe it might be useful if we maybe speak directly about some of those stories that we've that we've encountered I know you know in my travels I've you know I spent over I spent like nine years traveling around Indian country I've been to all those places Delta Junction Pawnee <laughs> Seattle you know I've been you to, need all- to res passports <laughs> I have I know I would have like all the places and um and you know like the stories that I've heard from our women has has lain really heavily on my heart and I've heard stories of women who, um, you know, were in the military, were assaulted and came home to bear children uh, from that experience and were rejected when they got home. I've heard stories of domestic violence and sexual assault from my own family members, uh, from, you know, like I think of like the grandmas who told me stories about being sterilized in Indian boarding or in the IHS system. I've heard stories around, um, I mean, I could go on and on and on because unfortunately, when I sit down to talk to our women 
and our two spirit relatives also and sometimes our men too they tell me these stories about what's happened to the safety of their body and so i thought maybe we should just take a moment to to kind of talk about that like that we're talking about people <laughs> real people and i don't know if you want to share on that but i'll invite you to <laughs> yeah i think that's so important and in the data work that i do um, I spend a whole day with my staff when they first start and I train them and I, and we, we talk about how every data point is exactly that. It's a mother, it's a child, it is a loved one. Um, when we talk about our sexual violence report, there was actually, um, one woman that we had to remove from the data analyses because she had been raped so many times in her lifetime that it actually made the other data get skewed because of the number of rapes that she had endured. And in um, data, you say, oh, well, we took out this outlier. It's like, oh, no, we honor you in your story. And in honoring your story, we lift it up and we share what you shared with us because every one of these women said they shared these stories because they wanted to change the circumstances that resulted in their assaults. And so we honor her in sharing such pain and sharing such trauma. And if we aren't acknowledging that the data is a story, is a loved one, it, even if you don't know them, when you hear their story, it touches your heart. It's part of your story now. Mm -hmm. And what responsibility do you have to that story now that you know it? Mm -hmm. Because I was always taught when you hear stories, there's a responsibility that goes with that. There's a teaching with that. There's a knowledge and you, you're meant to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, just yesterday, there was a memorial for a young woman who was killed about 30 miles from where we're sitting here in Tulalip. She was killed um, about 30 miles from here in South Seattle area. And it was her birthday. Um, she was a young woman and I saw all the little ones in the Facebook feeds of dancing and holding signs and honoring of her. The fact that there has been very little to no investigation of her murderer. And here are all these native people standing in a parking lot demanding justice in the light rain of Seattle, never forgetting their loved one. And so many of us hold stories that are not from this generation, even though I could tell you many of them. I can tell you stories from six generations ago, seven generations ago. We know and remember these loved ones. Mm. And I remember meeting a grandma. Um, she was at a conference that I was at some years ago. And she was telling me about the um, what sh she believed and knew was the murder of her granddaughter. Um, this young person was found shot in her bedroom and out her window there was actually footsteps footsteps in the snow out of her window but when the fbi came they ruled it a suicide despite her having been shot with a shotgun that was 15 feet away from her oh on the other side of the room and this young person was too small to have been able to complete a suicide with this shotgun because her arms were too short to have reached and so this grandma did what the FBI didn't do. She went through and she sterilized tongs in a dishwasher. And then she got Ziploc bags. And she went around and she got everything that she thought was evidence. And she used these sterilized tongs and she put them in Ziploc bags. And then she mailed them to the FBI. 
And she has called the FBI the last time I talked to her every single week, despite them sending a death certificate that said suicide. Because we also know that in these investigations, and I'm saying in quotation marks, they'll often do something that's easy and say, oh, this was a suicide, Mm. when in fact, it was a murder. Mm. These are the stories that we all, I feel I'm blessed to hear, and then I also go home and I cry about, Mm -hmm. and I write poetry about, and I make art about, because we also have to move through the trauma in order to be part of the healing, and when we tell these stories, if we're not healing, how can we be effective? So for those of us who have been blessed to do certain things in the movement, it's also been key for us to find those healing practices that allow us to keep hearing the stories, to be able to share, to tell them, um, to use them as motivation, Mm -hmm. and to use them for the fight for justice. But we also have to recognize that it's part of the trauma we all experience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, yes, I go home and I sit on my couch and I cry about the things that I wish I could do something about. I engage in the healing practices for me. I, I, like I said, I write poetry or I make regalia. And then I get up the next morning and I get ready to fight again. Mm. And I feel blessed to be able to do that. And without those stories that you were talking about, those are the driver that allow us to keep moving forward because none of our loved ones should ever experience these things. Mm -mm. None of them. And I think about that grandma, that matriarch of that family with her tongs in the dishwasher and big Ziploc bags, refusing to let the FBI do a crappy job. And she was going to demand justice for her, her loved one. Mm. And I have a responsibility after hearing her story to be part of their justice also. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. This reminds me when you're talking about the rain and and this family out there, you know, celebrating and and remembering and and never stopping like that's the families that I've had the privilege to to work with and to support and to advocate on behalf of. um, I'm just always so moved by by our commitment to our relatives, you know, in this world and the next. I mean, um, I want to just share a story because I had a hard time coming here to Seattle, uh, to Talela, but, but, but mainly coming into the city, I, I really struggled because there's a young Cheyenne woman that's been missing from, from Lame Deer, from my home, named Shakaya Harding. She was last seen in Seattle. We know that she's been a part of, um, you know, a sex trafficking circle, a ring, that she's being victimized. Um, And there was just about a month ago, um, a massive mobilization effort of her family and our relatives and uh, tribal leaders from our community who came to Seattle because uh, there were uh, reports that she, she had been spotted. And so folks, partnered with you know some of the local Seattle-based organizations I think Chief Seattle Club was one um, to do a, a, a real you know land search for her um, and they didn't find her they found another young woman another indigenous woman who looked like her mm. um, who also you know has been victimized and is struggling and um, is unsheltered and and um, but it wasn't her and so when I came to Seattle, it was just, it, I, I feel that heaviness. Um, and, and that's just one example. You know, our sisters, our daughters, our relatives, um, 
their their stories they wrap us you know these stories just I feel like are these blankets that we just keep getting wrapped over and over by and um, and I know that especially you know um, Mary Catherine I want to thank you so much for the advocacy and the work that you have done for justice for my niece, Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, um, for the work that you're doing in, in southeastern Montana. Montana has one of the highest rates of, of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls of any state. Um, and so I want to ask you, Mary Catherine, you know, um, you have walked alongside families as they have had doors shut in their faces, as they have had awful words told to them as they have been looking through autopsy reports and seeing undetermined death, right? Seeing suicide, seeing exposure, right? And we know that our women and girls, they didn't just end up dead in a sagebrush on their own accord. Um, And so I want to ask you, how do we hold not just people, but systems accountable we're talking about, you know, this is systemic. It's always been systemic. It's been systemic since, you know, 1492, when we had invasion, right? When we had the introduction of these colonial systems forced upon us. Uh, this has been such a, a very raw thing that I've, you know, I've gone through autopsy reports and I've gone through, I've seen firsthand just how much people in power don't give a fuck. They really don't just another dead Indian, how you have been a part of this over and over and over again for so many families. And it just, yes, whatever you can shed light on, I'd really value that. Oh, I mean, you know, here's the truth. You wanna know the really sad truth? Um, I represent a number of families. Okay, Sarah, your family was one of the first to reach out to me. And then all of a sudden it was like, because we were on social media talking about it, all these families started saying, I want an attorney too. My, and I now represent a large number of families. In most of those cases, I would say by far the mass, vast majority, if I actually did the numbers, my guess right now, I haven't done the data, but I, my guess would be 80% know who killed their daughter or their mm-hmm. sister or their niece. It's not a mystery. And if they don't know, it's like, here are the top three suspects who should obviously be investigated. And the authorities are writing it off as suicide. And instances like where, you know, one case um, that I'm working on, a a young girl who was quite young, a mother, um, just under six feet tall, was murdered by the father of her child. And her body was found in the basement in in this... um, crawl space that was below five feet and the uh, and the the county coroner said well and and of course her non-native husband right county coroner Mm -hmm. said she hung herself suicide hung herself suicide in a crawl space that's over you know like way uh, how does she hang herself in a space that's shorter than her and then lay her body out to be found like obviously she you know and but they don't care because the sheriff is buddy buddy with the father of her child who killed her, who had been repeatedly abusing her, right? And this is where the patterns of crimes that lead up to that come into play. And, you know, the FBI is the worst 
they are absolutely the worst. And how do I hold them accountable? You know, it, it, we haven't been able to yet. And that's, that's the shame of it all. Now, I think we're getting a few steps closer, but unfortunately, a lot of people think, well, Savannah's Act, Not Invisible Act, we won. No, <laughs> we got people's attention. But all Savannah's Act requires people to, the FBI to do is talk to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They have to engage in consultation, and then the U.S. Attorney's Office will create the MMIW guidelines that that U.S. Attorney will implement. Those guidelines could be eat a banana, go for a jog, get drunk. I mean, I don't care. You know, like they could be telling themselves, we're going to do whatever we want. Don't investigate. Who cares? Go watch a football game. And there's nothing in the statute that requires that U.S. Attorney to do anything different. Now, you know, I think there'd be a decent amount of public backlash if the U.S. Attorney's was like, you know, I'm going to drink beer and watch football, um, and that's how I'm going to deal with the crisis, which is what some of them are doing right now, instead of actually dealing with the crisis. But, you know, there's just no mechanism right now to directly hold the FBI accountable. And in Sarah's case in particular, they we've written them numerous letters. Do you know what the response has been? And, and, and got Senator Tester to write a specific letter saying, FBI, you need to investigate. Oh, her body was found a half a mile off the border of the reservation. We have no jurisdiction. That is a full-on lie. First of all, as Abigail pointed out, they have a federal trust, duty, and responsibility. She's a tribal citizen. She's been murdered. You have a trust, duty, and responsibility to investigate. Whether or not the U.S. attorney has jurisdiction to prosecute is a whole separate question. If you end up deciding that the U.S. doesn't have jurisdiction to prosecute, then after you investigated, you give that evidence to the sovereign government that does have jurisdiction. And that is your trust, duty, and responsibility. Second of all, how the heck do you know where she was murdered? You know, I mean, this idea that her body just sat there at this busy intersection in a very busy suburban neighborhood for five mornings in a row, and it just happened to be the fifth morning that the elementary school principal, when he went for his morning jog, discovered her body, is ludicrous. But that's literally what their story is, right? She wasn't. She could not have been murdered on tribal lands because she, you know, died of natural causes by lying in the suburban intersection for five days until her body was discovered. That is actually mm. their story. That's their justification for not doing an investigation. And <clears throat> Senator Tester wrote them a letter, and there's there's no accountability. So how are we going to hold them accountable? I mean, you want to talk about stories? What, another family I'm working with, Lindsay Whiteman's mother, Lindsay Whiteman, a citizen of the of the Blackfeet tribe. She was murdered. Everyone knows who murdered her. She was in a car with two non-native uh, citizens. I mean, the non-tribal citizens, two guys who shot her friend. Like she witnessed them murder and kill her friend. And when she tried to stop them from running away from the scene, they ran her over in their car and killed her. And then, then proceeded to take the bodies into Great Falls, Montana. And so they actually ended up getting charged by the Great Falls police for, and I can't, some crime related to confiscation of evidence and a deceased body in a, in a homicide investigation, right? Because you're not allowed to take a body from a crime scene. And that's what they did after they committed the crimes. The FBI has done nothing. We've written letters to the FBI saying these two Native women were murdered on the Blackfeet Reservation. We, there's no mystery as to who murdered them. I mean, just talk mm-hmm. to the Great Falls police who picked up the car with the body inside. But are they, are they investigating? Absolutely not. You know what they did on February 3rd? 
They showed up. Uh, Lindsay's brother, Jess Edwards, works, works for the Blackfeet Police. They just showed up on February 3rd, 2021, a couple years after she'd been murdered, after having done nothing, after not having answered any of the family's letters, after not having had a meeting with the family, after not communicating with the family, after not really doing an investigation. And they said, here, Jess, here's your sister's clothes that she was wearing when she died and walked off. <gasps> Can you imagine? You know, and, and that is what our families deal with. And that is what the FBI gets away with. And who is going to hold them accountable? And we have to. And so I'm actually begging senators right now to hold a hearing at the Senate committee. And maybe we can all join in that effort. And Abigail, you know, I, I would hope that you would get to testify at that hearing, too, to, to, to call the FBI out. Because, you know, it's great that the Biden administration has spoken out and said they are in favor of, of addressing this crisis. But the FBI has, has to be brought to task. And I, mm-hmm. I hope and pray that Attorney General Merrick Garland will take that seriously. I'm going to be honest. If you look at his record on the federal bench, he's did not pro-tribal sovereignty and not pro-native issues. Now, he's not super, super anti, but, you know, as we've witnessed over the last 500 years of history, um, you know, you can't, you can't be neutral or absent on these issues. You have to be engaged. Someone is going to have to tell the FBI, you don't get to do that anymore. And, you know, the thing that just really irks me is that, you know, I, it's great that Martin, Martin Scorsese is going to do this awesome movie about Killers of the Flower Moon. It's a total freaking white savior story about Tom White, the white FBI agent who saved the Osage by investigating the murders of the Osage when the FBI investigated like five out of hundreds and hundreds of murders of the Osage. Right. And right now the FBI is doing the same thing to our Native women. The same thing. So let's not celebrate them in a movie. Let's let's call the FBI out because they're repeating. The Osage murders are ongoing. Our Native women, the FBI is just not doing their job and we have to hold them accountable. And I think, you know, what we're all doing is so critical. But we're going to have to get to a place where non-Natives will say, I'm not going to be quiet about this either. I'm going to demand to my senator that they hold this hearing. I'm going to demand this and that. And we're going to have to put pressure on the Biden administration. Again, Mm -hmm. they've said some good things about MMIW, but this is our opportunity. They need to take action. They, the Biden administration, needs to require the FBI to to just to knock it off and to do their job Mm -hmm. and to uphold their treaty and trust duty obligation. Mm -hmm. We were going to actually ask you about that. So I'll just point out like one of our favorite quotes from you is you said, it's good to be a Facebook warrior. (laughs) but do actual impact in our communities through politics and et cetera. We have to be engaged politically to ensure we elect people who will take care of these issues. So could you kind of elaborate on that for a second for our listeners, for those that are at home? Can you explain the type of political engagement that you're talking about and where do we need this engagement right now and how both locally, federally, and uh, maybe both of you could address that? Thank you. And I I so appreciate that because I don't mean to throw any shade at our Facebook warriors and our Twitter warriors. (laughs) Like, you know, like, like, because we need that, right? That's an important piece of the puzzle, but it can't be the whole puzzle, right? And because, you know, it does, social media does get us something, but it only gets us part of the way. And we have got to hold, you know, and the FBI is a little bit amorphous, right? We don't elect the FBI. They're this weird agency within the Department of Justice, you know, how do, how, do, how do we get to them? And, I, you know, and that's, a, that's a more complicated route. But you want to talk about, like, for instance, Sheriff Big Hair at Bighorn County, right? How many Native women have been murdered on his watch and he's done absolutely nothing to investigate those crimes, right? Don't reelect him. 
Now, this is hard, especially in our border town communities, because there's so much racism um, from the non-natives. And sometimes they'll find the native person that, for whatever reason, is willing to help with that <laughs> or sort of run with that narrative. And so it, it, it's, I'm not saying it's easy for those of us in the grassroots communities to go out and win these elections. It's, those are big, big, big challenges, especially in border towns. But what we definitely need to be doing is not just giving our votes or sitting back and not engaging and watching these people be reelected. And, and, and at the state level, too, it's, you know, um, very disappointing to me to see um, the former Montana governor, Bullock, who's, you know, this liberal dim who's all about Native women rights, not respond to any of our letters on behalf of Kisera's family, you know, to say, you could, you have political power here. You could make the Montana Department of Justice go there and investigate. He didn't answer, did nothing. His office wouldn't meet with us, wouldn't give us 30 minutes to talk. And he wanted to run for Senate. So I was very happy to say publicly people should not vote for him because you don't get to do that. You don't get to not talk to families and do your job and and do something to address this crisis and then expect to win political office. And I think that's the kind of consequences that we need to bring to bear to candidates who think they can run for office but not care about MMIW and not do anything about it. Right. MK brings up incredible things that we have to consider. In particular, for non-Indians, we need you to step up and be an ally. Right. You know, this just sharing it on Facebook, that's not enough. I agree completely. There are opportunities and the collective power of allies can hold significant influence, but you need to be following the lead of Native communities mm -hmm. and Native leaders. Yes. Um, thinking about the stuff that MK and her team does, we need to follow what they're doing. We need to step up and support where the support is needed. Mm -hmm. When we think about the FBI, um, not too long ago, I gave a presentation to the Ninth Circuit mm -hmm. courts. I was giving a presentation on MMIW and things related to where the Ninth Circuit is. And I got up and I challenged the Washington State report, gave information mm -hmm. on our other MMIW report. I was the second presenter. The rest was um, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and then the state of Washington. And I remember sitting there and they only let me bring one person with me hmm. and every single one of them spoke directly to me. It was like little arrows trying to penetrate me as they directed the rest of their comments directly against what I had shared. And that was one experience. And I know MK probably gets that once a week. That <laughs> one time I will never forget because it was like almost a, a time for them to try to intimidate me. Yep. And we can't let that happen. And that's not happening to one individual. That's happening to full communities, hmm. full tribes, urban Indian centers. We need people to stand up and demand justice. And when we talk about the accountability of policymakers, they got voted by constituents. Hmm. They are not there for their own purposes. If they're not going to represent us, then get out. And we have the opportunity to make sure that happens and to stand up and to say this is what is needed. And non-Indian communities need to follow our lead. They don't need to be running it in the front. They need to be standing behind us, taking the messaging that Mary Catherine just shared mm -hmm. and taking that to those policymakers and holding folks like the FBI accountable. Mm -hmm. There are so many other departments across the federal government that also need to be held within accountability. And right now, when we look at the Biden administration, they're in office because of Indians. I believe that 100%. Absolutely. We swung the vote for them. Yep. Now is their time 
to stand up for us. Right. We were asking for change. They said they were going to bring it. Now do it. And we're going to hold them accountable to that. Mm -hmm. At the state and the local level, it's also important. Right now, here in the city of Seattle, there is an indigenous woman running for mayor. And I will say she is my sister, Colleen Echowak, (laughs) 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 who has been one of the leaders in our community. But when I think about her organization that she's currently executive director of, um, it was on the front front of the Seattle Times about a year ago where she talked about how at the very least they have one member, a female member who will come in and say she was raped hours before and front page of Seattle times, not a damn thing came out of that. Mm. There was an increased police presence. There was an increase of money or services. And I told a reporter, I was like, you know, I can't believe this is on the front page of the Seattle Times. What if another place like LA Fitness, where I have a $10 a month gym membership, um, reported at least one of their members reported a rape a week? The mayor would be there. The police would be there. The media would be there. And this reporter said to me, oh, but they pay a fee and automatically applied the fact that these native women who access the chief Seattle club are predominantly homeless and low income. And here I am on live TV (laughs) and trying not to swear profusely, but it was just the example of what and how people think about us as native women. Now, what if we had a native woman of the mayor of a city where women are reporting sexual violence in this way? Mm-hmm. What would the response look like? Mm-hmm. I promise you it would look different. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's why it's important for Native people to step into levels of leadership from the local level to the federal level. Yes, we need to hold accountability to our non-Indian policymakers, but we need more Native people. We need more Deb Hollins and Sharice Davids. We need more Colleen Echohawks. We need these people standing up for us and being in these places of power we need a native person leading the FBI. Right. That is not something that's unachievable. Mm -hmm. We need to demand that happens. Mm -hmm. And we need non-Indians and allies to step into this with us and be part of this force demanding change. Mm -hmm. That has been one of the things we've seen probably in the last three or four years. We hadn't really seen prior. Mm -hmm. And it really had to do with the, um, I would say, the Facebook warriors who really got out there and shared information and the media attention that we had been getting. And now what do you do with it? Yes, It has to step beyond that. That's how um, somebody asked me is like, well, what did you do after your report? Like I kept working. Mm -hmm. We just didn't stop. Nobody stopped. Mm -hmm. We can't stop. There are little ones standing in front of apartment buildings and parking lots with red hands over their faces who are mourning the loss of their loved one like happened this weekend here in Seattle and I'm sure happened other places. They deserve for every person in this country to be fighting for their safety and to be fighting for the justice of their loved ones. And it's going to take all of us demanding that change. And I can't wait until the head of the FBI is a native woman. Yes, that, (laughs) yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yes. yes yes yeah no our women deserve safety you know I, I can't say it enough native women deserve safety <laughs> i say it every time i give a public talk and it seems like we have to shout it from the rooftops and the inequality is so easy to spot if white women were being raped and victimized at this same level men would be in forced chastity belts 
You know, like <laughs> this would be a different. I'll start country. making them. <laughs> so could you add that to your regalia making? <laughs> it's in. <laughs> they will be distributed for free. Yeah. <laughs> this is just so powerful. You know, I keep thinking about all these different cases, and I think you know what? If there was a native woman who was coroner, if there was a native woman who was the sheriff, if there was a native woman who was the medical examiner this shit it wouldn't happen mm-hmm. yeah. we wouldn't let it happen absolutely and that goes back to why aren't we in those places and people are like oh well native people haven't achieved this academic place or they haven't gone to college for this or that it's like these systems of inequality including access to western education access to socioeconomics all of these things were meant to continue oh, yeah. to participate in the ongoing genocide of Native people through this violence, through our elimination in the data. These things are built in institutional and structural racism mm-hmm. that have resulted in, you know, I don't even know of a Native coroner. I really hope there's one, but I've never heard of a Native coroner in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need one. Yeah. We need thousands of them. Yeah. Which means we have to look at this as a systematic issue. Yep. The violence against women is a tool of war. Mm. It's recognized in the human rights world as a tool of war. It started that way in 1492, and it has not stopped, and it is continuing right now in 202021. We have to think about how do we change that tool of war? Mm. What are we going to do to intervene to ensure that this doesn't continue? Right. And unless we see this mass movement that MK was talking about, it's going to be us trying to minimize the harm of the violence that continues to occur. And I am tired of treating the symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to talk about something that's hard. Not like any, not like not like every, all of this is so hard. <laughs> right. But I want to state a hard fact, you know, that so many of our women and girls and our people, right, are being victimized by our own as well. Um, you know, and, and so why, why, why? And why do we protect predators in some of our communities? Why do we elevate them to leadership positions in, in some places? You know, so I often get asked, you know, it's all these damn white men. Yes, yes and, right? It's an and. So what are your guys' thoughts on uh, on our own uh, people? How do we keep our own people accountable, our own relatives? That's a tough question, right? Because I think that um, it's, it, it's really hard to look inside, but we have to. And I think we have to in a way where pe- people have to both be held accountable And we have to have compassion because we understand where the violence comes from. You know, I have so much respect for Judge Abby Abenanti from the Yurok tribe and the programs that she's created there where a lot of times, you know, domestic violence abusers convicted in their tribal court there, she doesn't just say, okay, now we're going to put you in jail. It's, there's a whole cultural healing program she sentences them to so they can reclaim their Yurok identity because it is not a Yurok cultural value to rape women or to abuse women, right? That's not, that's not an inherent traditional Yurok cultural value. Now, many of 
the generations before us and, and, and not some of our generations too, but you know, were abused in boarding schools, abused in forced, during forced removal. I mean, there's, there's no, it's not a mystery as to why we have this violence in our communities. The task before us is what do we do about it? And you know, the model that we've, that we've been told we have to, that we have to do is this very Western model. And, you know, and, and maybe some tribes want to do that and that might be fine, but you know, a lot of tribes, especially like I just keep thinking of the example at Yurok, you know, we, we have to find a way to achieve that cultural restoration, that understanding of what it means to be a Cherokee person or a Pawnee person or a Yurok or, you know, whatever, whatever you are. Like, I don't know a single tribal nation. I point to me a tribal nation who, who thought domestic violence was a, an important value. Like you should, you should abuse your wife or your, or your girlfriend or your daughter or whoever, you know, before 1492, like that didn't exist. And, and not to say that we were hundred percent perfect, but we had, we had a way of teaching our values and of keeping that in check. And that's been thrown off balance. And we know why, but now we have to think about, okay, we can't just, you know, we know we've been told we have to adopt purely Western models, but, but we actually don't. And, you know, how, how do we look back to our own cultural values and teachings and systems of justice? I mean, we have those in place. And how, how do we look at when members within, and, and, and in part, as you're right, part of the problem is, is those people are sitting on our tribal councils, you know, they're, and what do we do? What do we do when someone on our tribal council is molesting children or raping women? I mean, this happens. And we have to find a way to hold that individual accountable. And it's honestly, it, it is a pretty, it's an issue that's kind of within Indian country. I don't, I don't like the idea of, well, we need to get the state or the feds to intervene. We've been doing this for thousands of years. Yes, we had a huge disruption over the last several hundred years, but we got this. We just got to do it, right? And we got to support one another, you know, our sisters and brothers and other tribal nations who are fighting this fight in their homes and provide support. And it's going to be tough, but um, I think I, I think we can do it. So um, last May 5th, I got this frantic text message and then a FaceTime call from a young woman and she was at her tribal community. And so May 5th is uh, MMIW Awareness Day in many states and many communities. And she was at her MMIW event and the person singing and doing the opening prayer was her rapist. Mm. Um, a rapist in the community who was known to have sexually assaulted women and to also um, have perpetrated domestic violence. And this young person who I had given my number to like the year previously called me because she said, who I've told everybody, everybody knows this is who this person is and what he's been doing. And he's the one opening up this MMIW event. And it was breaking her heart. And as we think about how our loved ones cope in the midst of this trauma, this is where we see the coping with alcohol or other kinds of substances. This is where we see the mental harm that results in suicide attempts. This is where we see the things where people don't connect to others because they know nobody believes them. And if we don't address this dysfunction in our community, we are not going to be able to heal. Mm. And addressing issues in our community was who we were prior to colonization. The things that... MK was talking about in this restorative healing processes. We did that centuries before. 
We need to rebuild that. And the reason that this young woman had my phone number is because she had been in an event where I was speaking about sexual assault and I had shared that my rapist was a native man. Mm. And because hers was too, she asked for my number because we connected. And she asked, you know, can I call you sometime? And I said, yes, Mm. you can call me anytime. And when she called me, we cried together because I know what it means to see the person who harmed you in such a way Mm. elevated in the community and nobody holding them accountable. And when we talk about accountability, it's not talking about punitive punishment. It's about healing Mm -hmm. for the person who was victimized and healing for the person who was the perpetrator. So when we released our report on sexual violence in Seattle, we did it first with the community. We gathered Mm -hmm. together community members and in that gathering, all of these folks who had experienced sexual assault said, for those of them who had been assaulted by people in our own communities, they're like, we don't throw our people away. Mm. We want healing for them. We recognize that they have been impacted the things that we've been impacted by. Mm-hmm. The boarding schools, the dislocation from our lands, mm. the ongoing trauma, the fact that they were probably sexually assaulted or abused themselves. And when we look at the science of folks who are abusers, very often a majority of them experience the same things in their lives. And it becomes learned behavior that per- continues generation after generation. Historical trauma is real, but so is historical healing. Mm. And when we stood in that circle and those women were saying, I want my perpetrator from my community, from my family to be healed because I need that for my own healing. Mm. That's what our community should be focusing on. How do we heal them? Mm. How do we change that for the next generations? I'm a mom. Mm -hmm. I have two incredible sons who have been going to rape rallies (laughs) since they were babies. (laughs) I have a picture of my son. He's six years old and he's got like, we were at a rape rally and he's covered in stickers that say end rape because he's six and he likes stickers. (laughs) (laughs) I was um, recently at a murder trial of a man who had murdered a native woman, a non-Indian guy. And I was there with my son. He was um, 19 at the time. And we were there, you know, we brought the family some food and some money and things like that. And um, during the lunchtime, they walked the murderer who was convicted of the murder out of the courtroom. And my son was with me. We were sitting out outside the door. And when they walked him by with the police officers, one of the police officers turned, turned and looked at me. And because of the work that I've been doing, I have become recognizable in this work. And he turned around and was like walking backwards, staring at me. It was very intimidating. Mm. And my son stood up, put his hood over his head, and put his body in between me and that police officer Mm. where that person couldn't see me anymore. And I thought, oh, wow. The trauma that our young men carry and even thinking about how do they protect the women in their lives. Because my son also knows, especially here in Washington, Native men are more likely to be killed by the police than anybody else. Mm. And here he did put his big, beautiful brown body between me and what he saw as a threat. Mm. They carry that that trauma too. Mm. And how do we make sure that as loving people in our communities, as moms, as aunties, as grandmas 
and as our community, how do we make sure that our young men get the resources they need to heal this trauma, Mm -hmm. that we address those and hold accountable those in our community who have perpetuated trauma? Because I don't want to keep answering phone calls from young women who see their rapists being held up by our community and leading. Right. That's not traditional. No. Violence is not traditional. And upholding that is not traditional. Mm -hmm. We need to step away from these patriarchal colonial systems that don't allow us to address trauma in our communities. We need to go back to the healing that our relatives had, that our ancestors held on to, so I can teach my beautiful son that protecting his mom and protecting his aunties and his nieces is his responsibility. Mm. And I'm blessed for him to hold that responsibility. And I also recognize that deep trauma comes with that. Mm. And it's gonna take us changing and sharing stories. And I will say, that I have received terrible feedback on the fact that I share about my rapist being Native. Mm. Because people don't like to hear the things that are hard in our community and the public. Yeah. But then folks like us, me and this young woman, when nobody talks about it, how can we ever receive healing? Right. And I'm sorry, I deserve that. Yes. She deserves that. And every other Native person deserves that. And our community deserves healing. Because we have these beautiful light-skinned, dark-skinned, black hair, blonde hair, Native men and Native people who want to be here and want to heal for our communities. And they want to heal from the violence that they have been part of and the violence that they have perpetrated. Mm-hmm. This has been an incredible, incredible conversation, and thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry I have to jump off. I'm happy to to talk again if 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 we need to do more. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm just sorry that I have I have to jump off for the the kid conference right now. But <laughs> okay, thanks. thank okay. you. Thank you so much. I love you thanks, all okay. so much. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> So there's some really great resources. The National Indigenous Women's Resource Center has resources for both organizations and for survivors. And one of the strongest ones that they have is called the Strong Hearts Hopeline. And so you can call them, you can text them, you can spend time in conversation with people, um, talking through, because you're right, there are going to be times when nobody is going to believe you. And that's what rape culture looks like for women in our LGBTQ plus community nationwide nobody believes and these systems have been set up to benefit men and allows for this violence continue so that resource I know has been one that people have utilized and have really um, seen good results from because sometimes you just need somebody on a call you know like that's why I give my phone number out Um, that's why I can never change my phone number (laughs) is sometimes people just call me and I just listen and say, I understand. I believe you, you matter giving people when they bring these experiences, you just not asking questions about what happened, but just saying, I believe you, Mm -hmm. your feelings are valid. You're valid. Yeah. That is something survivors do not get very often. Mm. 
reaching out to resources like the Strong Hearts Hopeline and also as somebody, you know, who experienced these kinds of assaults. And I always say I was every statistic as a teenager that we place on our youth. I was actively suicidal. I abused substances. I engaged in risky behaviors because I was in such deep pain Mm -hmm. and I could not figure out what to do. So knowing resources like the suicide hotline exist, that there are native specific resources like the Strong Hearts Hopeline, our tribal communities recently because of the um, the things that are going on in the pandemic, I've found myself triggered and in a point of trauma a lot more in my MMIW work than I've experienced in a long time. Mm -hmm. So things like right now, I can't share blankets with my partner because I can't have anybody touch my skin. Mm. And that is a a trauma response from Mm. my um, sexual assaults. Mm. And so I've actually been zooming in to the Pawnee Nation's support group (laughs) that is being held. Um, And as a result of the pandemic, for the very first time, they've done that virtually. Mm. So I've never been able to participate in that before. But I'm accessing my tribal services, even though I'm living in Seattle, Washington. I'm zooming in to where other Pawnee women are for us to come to create and support this supportive system together. Mm -hmm. So being in spaces with other survivors and finding ones that are specific for native people and also for people of color, those resources are there. Mm -hmm. And we also recently did a survey of sexual assault survivors and asked them, what are the resources outside of law enforcement? We recognize that law enforcement is not our resource. Mm -hmm. What was your healing? And for every single one of them, all of the women who responded, it was cultural resources. Mm -hmm. It was singing. It was gathering with other native matriarchs. It was having times to come together to learn beading. And it's not about the, just the physical activity, although there's a mindfulness part of that, but it was also about the reconnection to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. When I sit there and I make regalia, I think of 10 generations ago of the Pawnee women who passed that knowledge down to my Auntie Shayla Rice, who taught it to me. They're beating with me. They're making ribbon skirts with me, and I know that they're with me in that time. So these kinds of resources are what we need to see our outside partners, not only funding, but not questioning. Mm. So yes, a support group is a beating group, Mm -hmm. is a drumming group, um, is a traditional language group, is a traditional foods. All of these resources are necessary and needed and are part of what our healing is. Some of the outside resources like the suicide hotline save lives. And I will say there are times in my life it saved mine. Mm. And so use them. Also reach out to your traditional ways because that is where our healing lies. And in my times of my deepest triggered moments, I go back home to Alaska. Mm. I go into the blueberry fields Mm. where, where I'm from, The blueberries, the weather gets so hot and so cold, below 50 degrees, (laughs) over 90 degrees in the summer. And as a result of that, our plant is so strong. Mm -hmm. And so our traditional ways, the the blueberries, you'd give to the elders and to the youth and you'd prioritize them with that. And Western science now knows that those blueberries have the highest amount of antioxidants and vitamins as a result of the extreme conditions they live in. And I go home to the blueberry fields to touch that plant and to know I'm a blueberry too. Mm -hmm. That our traditional foods are part of what heal us. Mm -hmm. So I'll stand in those fields of blueberries and I'll pick them um, and I'll be really loud and sing super loud so bears don't come. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's also to teach my sons those traditional songs. Mm. And I'll go back to those ways. And when I'm in my deeply triggered moments, I have to remember I'm a blueberry. Mm. And I've shared that story a lot with other sexual violence survivors. And I was at a conference a couple years ago before COVID. And out of the crowd, some young girl comes running up to me and she says, do you remember me, Abigail? Do you remember me? And I was like, yes, I sort of remember you. (laughs) She's like, I just want to tell you this year was terrible, but I'm a blueberry too. And she gave me the biggest hug and, and holding her in my arms, I just thought, what if we all knew we were blueberries too? Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, let's close. I'm going to close out in a good way. I'm going to sing a prayer song um, for um, for those at home because that's what we do here. <laughs> I think um, it's important to hold that space of healing. Um, you know, these are this is a hard conversation, mm. and um, I had an elder tell me that every time that I offer um, that I share stories that make you feel something, like if you're going to bring tears then you also have to bring um, healing to the spirit too. You know, you can't leave it, the work undone. So I'm not a good singer. I'm just going to preface that. Like I didn't get blessed with the good voice in the family. I have others <laughs> in the family that have that voice. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'll apologize up front. But this song comes from a house. It, it's a healing song. We sing it when... Um, we sing it when we do work on the floor and they ask the people to come down and um, they wrap them in blankets. They stand around them and sing this song. So I'll I'll just do that. Thanks, relatives, for sticking with us through that one. We know it was a lot. But before we sign off today, we want to leave you with a few action items that we can take as individuals and collectively, starting with filling out the form letter on our website and sending it to your congressman and telling them to pass the newest version of VAWA. And we need another Senate hearing on MMIW. And listen, it's not enough for just Indians to care. We are literally only 2% of the United States population, so we need non-natives to care, and we need their pocketbooks to care too. So donate to the hyperlinked organizations. And stop perpetuating the Pocahontas myth. Stop the hypersexualization of indigenous women in this country. Exactly. You know, and we can hold our local law enforcement officials accountable, especially if we're in states like Alaska, Montana, Washington, South Dakota, Arizona, and New Mexico. And run for political office. My God, we need sheriffs and coroners and mayors and state, city, and county officials who care. So run. 
Throw your name in the hat. Let's do it. And on a personal level, we can talk to our relatives. We can listen to our survivors, hold space, believe our survivors, and keep our relatives in our prayers. You're not alone. We're with you. Please consider becoming a patron on Patreon, follow us on Instagram at AMR Podcast, or send donations through PayPal. You can find all of that on our website, www.allmyrelationspodcast.com. Thank you to all those that made this episode possible. Thanks, MK and Abigail, for joining us. Shout out to Quinna Hamby on the episode art made by yours truly. Thanks to Teo for creative direction, sound engineering, and editing. Haishka Siam to Antone and the West Shore Canoe family. Auntie Joanne Shenandoah and Max Levin for the music. And thanks to our AMR team, Will Paisley, Kristen Bolin, Edison Hunter, John Aon, Lindsay Hightower, Keone Rodriguez, Carly Sordahl, and marketing intern Jamie Marquez Bratcher. <laughs> Takes a lot of minds to put this together, so thanks all. Ooh. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. thank you. Okay, I'm gonna stop the recording. Hey. <laughs> all my relations.